Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed. How are you? I am doing well, doing well. Excited uh, that um, we're going to have our first guest here at Wonky Folk. I know. And this is like a, a poor man's version of Smartless. We have a mystery guest. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, so for folks who this is your first time or you've never watched this podcast or you've been in the Taylor Swift concert and lost your memory and so you need to be refreshed, uh, this is Wonky Folk. And uh, with Jed Wallace of, of Charter Folk and a leading charter consultant. And I'm Andy Rotherham of Bellwether. And uh, today, though, this will be a, a, a wonky folk that's going to go deep on charters. Uh, and the reason is because there was a, a big study that just recently came out uh, about charter schools, uh, the third in a series. And it's um, uh, by Credo at, at Stanford. Uh, and it's important. And so Jed and I tried to figure out, like, who would be a really good person to have on, who incidentally will also be our first uh, guest ever, um, uh, on on um, Wonky Folk, and and we were trying to figure out who would be a great person to have on to discuss this study and its implications. And so we chose no another, and we were delighted to have an accepted invitation from Mackie Raymond, who is the. We figured go straight to the go straight to the source. So who better? Then the lead investigator and, you know, the leader of Credo, who's been on this uh, issue and doing these studies, you know, for well more than a decade now. So, Mackie, thank you. Welcome, right. Mackie. With that kind of a buildup, it's got to be downhill from here. <laughs> now we're excited. I wore my, uh, I don't know if you can see on the screen, I wore, my, um, uh, I wore my charter shirt that I only wear for like really important discussions of things like charter schools that are uh, you know, generally really tortured conversations. And that's why we're excited that you're here because um, you really do do a nice job of sort of cutting through the rhetoric on all sides and, and getting to the facts of, of what's actually going on. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So I'm playing straight man to Andy Rotherham. That's that's a good one. But Mac, <laughs> you know, delighted to have you here for sure. I, I'm going to take the first question because I, I do think we're going to focus a lot on charter school issues. But what's great also are the implications for your study as it relates to uh, public education more broadly, all sorts of decision points, you know, about what society is doing in terms of our commitment and our policymaking as it relates to public education. So we'll go in a lot of different directions, but I want to start with kind of the heart of the matter and uh, and what are the takeaways from your standpoint, the most important ones that we should be looking at as it relates to the, the performance of charter schools over a multi-decade time frame, There are very few studies that have such a long standing um, uh, look at things. And also you've been through ups and downs. You've been at your moment when the charter school world was so frustrated with you. And you know there has been also this moment of like, hey, can you please do more? And you know it's always a struggle to get the quality data and now you've been able to do it. So. Uh, just uh, very intrigued to hear what your thoughts are about the most important thing we should be thinking about, given that multi-decade frame that you bring to the work. Sure. So um, great way to start. Thank you. Um, so as I look across all of the data from all three of the studies, um, the thing that really stands out for me is the fact that there are so many, many schools in our sample that demonstrate improvement over time in a time frame where that wasn't the case for the nation. And so when I think about what the charter proposition does for schools, I think it creates the right kind of incentives for the adults in schools to do the right thing by kids. And that is for me, the largest takeaway. 
So go ahead, Jed, please. Well, I wonder, there are so many different findings that you have, you know, within your story. I mean, this, this idea of a sector that's grown to serve millions of kids to be able to improve at that scope, it just, you know, seems pretty un unprecedented. But there are all sorts of sub stories. There are concerns, hey, we aren't doing as well with white kids. Hey, we've got our challenges as it relates to special education. Um, uh, how do you think the, what's the right way to present the study in its totality? What's the right me meta frame while also maintaining, you know, or encouraging the movement to keep enough integrity, to keep focused on the things that still aren't good enough yet? And Mackie, when you answer that, that's a really important question, particularly that last part, like for charter proponents, but also just for folks, I feel like some folks may be feeling like they're joining a play in the third act here. Just talk a little bit about the study, the method, how you do it with the with the virtual twins and talk about this study, what's the timeline we're looking at. Think like help help readers also understand what specifically we're talking about here. Okay, I'll start by answering Andy's first. And then Jed, I may have to circle back to you and get the question refreshed. Um, so um, I, I also have to say, um, as, a, as a scholar of education policy in the United States, um, I wanna put on the table that our team um, doesn't pick um, as an advocate any particular policy or, or program to endorse. We let the data tell us what, what the answers are. And so when we set out to uh, examine the performance of charter schools, we wanted to know really what, what was the impact they had on student academic learning and progress over time. And so our entire method is, is focused on what do kids learn? And in order to do that study, there's a lot of concern that you don't, you don't get to compare charter schools to district schools head to head like that because they might not have the same kids. So we developed a methodology where we created a very complicated matching methodology. I'll spare you all the details. But what we end up with is we end up with essentially twins. The only difference between the twins is that one student is enrolled in a charter school. And the other, is, the other example is students who enroll in district schools that the charter school students otherwise would have attended if they hadn't gone to the charter school. So very, very tight geographic comparisons and very tight demographic comparisons. Um, based on that, we've been doing this for a really long time and we've seen the results go from really strong, negative and statistically significant, which is what we came up with in 2009, the first time we did the study, uh, to now in the 2023 study, uh, in both subjects, reading and math, students in charter schools are learning more. Than, they, than their peers in traditional district schools are learning in the space of a year. And we think that the, that trajectory over the three studies that we've done um, is evidence of the fact that schools themselves are improving in little bits and little bits and little bits. And over time, they actually have created these greater gains for students. That's an incredibly important finding. It's not just a charter school finding, it's an education finding. And we're, we're really excited that we, uh, we were able to see that in the data. Yeah, I should go over to Jed's, Jed's question. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I started at, at CCSA in 2009 and we already knew from a variety of other data sets that we had some serious quality issues in, in, in the movement. And 
two mandates, get better in advocacy, but the other one, find a way for us to begin to nudge the entire charter school sector toward greater, uh, greater performance. And your study really put in, in repose just how important that was. So my question for you now, going back to the one I've asked before is, there are, there's the meta story, this incredible story of a multi-million uh, multi student sector actually being able to improve itself. But there are sub-stories as well where maybe it's not as good, or maybe there are sub-stories are even better than the meta story. But how do you think uh, we both keep the focus on the, on the, I think, very positive meta story that's happened while also have the integrity to keep pushing ourselves in those areas. Um, and everything gets so politicized. It seems to me like charter you know, detractors, all they wanna do is focus on our problems and you know, charter advocates can, can err in the other direction. What's the right way to keep the mix here, Mackie? Well, I think I can give you the thumbnail answer by pointing to the title of this third study. Um, we have named this study, as a matter of fact, the National Charter School Study Three. Uh, and the reason that we did that was because of all of the thousands and thousands of times when we have heard some small slice of opinion or position about schools that are in the charter sector that just don't hold up under scrutiny. They don't hold up to the data. And so what I would say is, um, along with Andy's T-shirt, um, mm -hmm. it, it's not just a completely vanilla story. I mean, there's very, very strong positive news that we see in the study that we have brought forward. Um, and we really wanna celebrate that, particularly in uh, this post COVID world where uh, the need for evidence-based strategies for student success has never been higher. This is good news for everybody. Um, but we also wanna be you know, completely honest about the fact that um, there are still uh, pockets within the charter school landscape where there are students that are not learning as much as they should. There are pockets where schools are not performing as well as they should. Um, and, and we need to be completely transparent about that um, as researchers, because that's what the data say. Yeah. So let, I want to talk about those pockets. I appreciate the t-shirt call out. I think something that will surprise people in our extensive market research, people think people are coming to this podcast for the, for the education policy discussion. It's actually our fashion choices. It turns out is what's actually driving uh, listenership. Yeah, yeah. Which was, was a surprise to us uh, as well. Um, so you talk about those pockets, like dig in and both in terms of like, you know, types of schools, uh, types of kids, like what are, what are some things we should be attentive to? Because I do think one of the things I've respected about these studies since the start is, as you said, they don't flinch uh, on the bad news. These aren't exercises in, in messaging and so forth. And so I think that's what makes them valuable and credible over time. Um, but talk about what we did see some places here where, where, where there's obviously a lot of room for improvement. Sure. Uh, so, so let me just say, uh, across the entire student population that we study, um, we saw that uh, there were particular student groups that did not learn as much as uh, they would have had they gone to traditional public schools. Um, I, would, I would call out here Native American students, even though they constitute a small percentage, the learning gains that they post are just not anywhere near what they need to be in order to prepare those students for the life that they will, will eventually inherit. Um, the same is true 
for students who have special education needs. Um, they are just not getting the kind of education in charter schools. And this has been a persistent finding across the studies that we've done, not just these national studies, but when we drill down into particular areas, particular geographies, we see this as well. So this is, this is sort of a collective, uh, a, a collective finding for the entire movement. And then finally, the, the one that just continues to distress are the student results for students that are enrolled in virtual charters. The, the learning that they get there is so far dramatically under their peers in traditional district schools um, that, that we, we just have to call it out. There's just no way around it. Yeah, that's been an ongoing issue. Like, do you want, I mean, to talk about that. That's been, and, and if a virtual school proponent were, were here to sort of try to give them their due and steel man their argument, they would say, well, like there's a lot of variants and kids don't go to virtual schools because they were doing well previously. You know, they go because they're struggling and they're looking for a fit. And so they're trying this thing. Like, like talk about what, why do you think that is? And, and, and to the extent you agree with this, why do even the strongest arguments from virtual supporters fall short? Well, I, I want to say I'm going to be drawing on not just this study, but our earlier study of virtual charter schools. Um, and there we partnered with Mathematica um, and also with the Center for Reinventing Public Education. So we brought a larger body of knowledge to that study than we were able to do in this study. The results continue to be concerning because a lot of the claims just are not substantiated. The claim that the students all come to virtual schools because they have had X in the past, and that X has actually changed over time. When we first started talking about this, it was that they were bullied. Uh, then it was because they had some particular categorical learning challenge. Then it's now because they were, you know, they're they're in post-traumatic stress. The the argument continues to be it's a student-based problem, and therefore we should be off the hook. And I just want to say. If you're a charter school, your job is to figure out how to meet kids where they are and bring their learning forward. And I don't care whether you're talking about a Native American population, whether you're talking about Hispanics or ELL or special ed or white kids in suburbia. I don't care your job as a charter school. The reason that you've been given a charter is to do exactly what I just said. Take kids from where they are and move them forward. And so after all of the time that we've put into virtual education, the fact that we have gotten results this time that are even worse than last time, and this is before the pandemic hit, I'm just boggled. I'm boggled why this is this is a conversation we continue to have. I think yeah. that, uh, my experience in this is that you know if if you can come up with minimum performance expectations that apply to charter schools, the vast majority there are some that are in prisons. And there are some that are working with certain populations of you know, alternative students where maybe that we need to have something very specific and different. Um, but across the vast swath of schools, it is possible to identify minimum performance expectations um, that would apply to absolutely all schools. And if the, if the movement and, and, and policymakers have the fortitude to simply uh, enforce those we will address if they, if we have disproportionate problem in virtual schools. You will see that those schools uh, will will face a reckoning or improve, um, and it's important for us to to do that. I guess my question for you, Mac, is 
where do you think societal, um, you know, opinion is on the use of standardized tests? You know, generally, you know, are we are we wavering in our commitment? Is it harder for you to get the data that you need to do these kinds of tests? Um, what's the future here? Are we are we going to be able to sustain enough focus on student learning such that your kind of studies, you know, can can continue? And what does that mean for society more broadly? If the answer is no. Society more broadly, let's talk about the future of Credo. Um, both of these things align in this question because the, the work that we've done for the last 20 years um, requires that we be able to access student level data um, of a preponderant number of students in each of the places that we study. So states necessarily need to be educating the majority of students in public schools, in environments that are tested on a regular basis. Um, a number of those assumptions are starting to, to not necessarily hold true. So we see in the most recent um, enrollment data that there are a lot of students who are electing not to be involved in the public sector um, for education. We see a lot of legislative activity that suggests that we're going to see more and more students taking advantage of alternative pathways to education, whether it's homeschooling or micro schools or private schools or whatever through the ESA programs. So that, in addition to a, a sort of a, shall I say, a softening of the uh, commitment to testing students on a regular basis that we see in a number of states, we're not convinced that the record about what kids know is going to continue into the future. And I think that that's a real threat to the kinds of performance expectations that we need to be able to place on schools, uh, especially now. Um, and so I, I have the concern, you know, not just for my team, but for the nation as a whole, that uh, while we have a active conversation about whether testing is good or how to make testing better, I would like to make sure that we don't lose the signal that we do get from testing until we have something better to replace it with. So, yeah, I agree. And on the virtual school question, it seems like this is a kind of schooling that works well for a real subset of kids but has been scaled quite a bit and is serving more kids than it probably is going to serve optimally. And that may be one of the reasons that we're seeing these results because you do see virtual school can work for some kids, but the scale it's at, and then the Bellwether Charter Deck a few years ago, this was a very clear finding uh, both on virtual schools and also states that had a lot of virtual schools, their achievement was getting depressed overall as, as, a, as a result of it. So, so you do see this. I want to go back, though, to this question on Native Americans, because I think it's fascinating. You have uh, the tribes are actually starting their own charter schools. And a real area of concern has been uh, Native kids in district schools where more than 90 percent of them go to school. Like, I think there's a can be a people can think that that, that the BIE schools and so forth um, uh, are um, uh, are a larger section than they are. Most of these kids are in district schools and there's been a move that they're not being well served there. So how do you address that and put them in schools that are going to be more culturally affirming, be better? And yet we're seeing these results. So talk a little bit more about that, Mackie. Like, what are your hypotheses for why we're seeing that? What, what should, how should advocates be thinking about that? So I, I think it's a really uh, important sector of concern for the charter school community. Um, my sense is that uh, the models that have been introduced in the Native American serving schools that we see um, 
are not culturally affirming, I would also say they're not necessarily sustainable in the environments in which they're placed. And so I think that there's a fundamental mismatch between the schools that enroll Native Americans in charter schools. I should note that the schools that have Native American students, there are very few where the Native Americans are themselves the majority of the students. So we're still seeing the same problem that you just mentioned for the district schools, where we're seeing small slices of the student population be Native American and slotting into other charter schools uh, across the country. And I think there it's very easy for students to get to to get missed and to not be the center of attention. So the the uh, reservation and tribe-based charter schools are trying to do a different thing, which I, I applaud and I'm looking forward to learning more about as time goes on. That's great. That's 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 really interesting. Talk about one other subset of kids. You know, a big push you hear in the in the charter world politically, and something Jed and I've actually talked about on this podcast is how do you build a suburban political strategy and how do you build, you know, how do we keep charters right now are so disproportionately sort of a, a function of urban politics and haven't really penetrated the suburbs uh, as much as how do you build a broad-based movement? Yet some of the results that you find seem to raise questions about that as a, as a sort of efficacy strategy in terms of actual, as you said earlier, actual teaching and learning, um, uh, leaving aside the politics. So how should, how should we think about those results? So... The, the suburban results that we see are literally in comparison to suburban schools. And so when we don't see a necessary advantage to going to a charter school, in that specific achievement context, that might not be a bad thing. Let me just say, um, we would always want to see charter schools doing strong academic progress for kids. And when you look at most of the suburban schools, you will see that. What you'll see, though, is that they're not quite as strong as the schools that they otherwise would have attended. And that's why we get the result that we do. Having said that, there are a large number of cases that uh, suit a charter school presence in suburbia, where you have huge schools at the high school level, where you have uh, a, a particular run of schools from elementary to middle to high school that may not actually provide a, a kind of flexibility that families are looking for. Those are contexts in which charter schools can actually enter and be very successful because they're offering choice, they're offering flexibility, they're offering the opportunity for a different education environment. And what we see in, in places where the suburban uh, education has been really high flying, but really high stress. That's the place where the charter conversation has become very vibrant. That's interesting. I've, I've always thought the customization and sort of choice and options part is a key thing in the suburbs. It's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of schooling. And so if you, if like your basic schooling needs are being taken care of, then you start thinking about, oh, I might want chronology, I might want arts, and that sort of customization is is a is a key selling. And actually, I think over time makes public education more resilient because instead of trying to keep people in who want something else, you're giving them lots of choices, and people feel more bounded, invested in the in the entire project. I think that's a great point, Mackie. Can you talk about the composition of students who are in virtual settings? My intuition is that we would have uh, a larger percentage of those students be uh, Caucasian than in other class uh, classroom-based settings. Um, and that could be skewing the results as it relates to, to white kids. But is my intuition wrong here or not? 
No, you're right. Um, and for those of, for those of you who would like to really like totally geek out, we have a website of all of the results of our study uh, that are available for you to go and poke around with. And if you look at the demography of, of the charter school landscape, the demography of virtual charter enrollees is, is substantially more white than charters or their district schools. Um, lower proportions of black students by a great deal and lower proportions of students in poverty. And so there, there is a sort of an evolving archetype of what a typical virtual charter school student looks like. I will warn that there are contexts across the country where that is not the case. And so I, I wanna just sort of put a little bit of a, put the brakes on a little bit of us thinking about the kid who goes to a virtual school looking a particular way because we actually see pockets where that's not the case. Because I'm all intuition here, and you're, and you're, you know, you know, scholarly smarts, right? But I, I really see three things here. One is that we have an overrepresentation of of white kids that are in virtual settings. We have an, a second uh, swath where we have parents that don't want what they're getting within um, traditional public schools, and they value other things like project-based learning, like Montessori, like you know, whatever it may be, um, that just don't generate the same results. And then there's a third thing, which is the charter school world simply has not made this as big a priority. Um, and so we are not innovating or creating as many new great schools in these contexts as I think is with, within our potential. And when we're starting to look at the, at the demographic support for charter schools varying by race, you know, I think a key thing for us to be working on is come on, let's come up with a bunch of, of things that a lot of families in the suburbs want and that will, going back to Andy's question, you know, really start to, to change the overall political support we might have. Yeah, it's my sense that this is one of the, one of the responsibilities that is gonna fall on charter school advocates, which is to continue to advocate for this kind of data being available and for schools to be um, held accountable to it. Um, I think we find ourselves in a challenge because I think there have been all sorts of instances where data has not been used wisely and, yeah. and not used fairly. And so anytime you end up defending something like that, you run the risk of undercutting your own credibility. But but more, but for the long term, for the long term, uh, some there's gotta be some voice. And and Andy, maybe you've got other ideas about where else you know we can, you know, get um, some spine, you know. Uh, to to keep uh, this kind of testing data available in the landscape. Well, Jed, that's a great question. And I mean, you would think like in general, people would want as much information and as much transparency, but as we know, that's 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 not the case. Um, and so I do think we're under a lot of pressure here. We, I mean, we're seeing even like post-pandemic, it's been a struggle to get test score data released in a lot of places. And I think in some of those places, like, and we talked about a few weeks ago, New Jersey, like, I think one of the reasons maybe it, it told a pretty good story about charter schools and a less good story about traditional public schools. And there's obviously politics around, around all of that. Um, so I think it's a big problem. It's something that everybody needs to pay attention to because without good data, this just becomes brute force, uh, brute force sort of, sort of politics. So Mackie, I kind of want to ask you related to that though, like I followed these since the beginning. I remember the 2009 study and you got a lot of grief because there's certainly in the, in the charter world, there was a sort of hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil faction that was like, you know, essentially kind of argued you were like turning your guns on, on, on the wrong lines or something. And I think what gives these, this, these study credibility again, as we said earlier, is how it arcs over 
time and, and the results have changed. Um, but how, like, it seems like we're still heavily anchored on, I still hear a lot about the 2009 results when you listen to advocates, it's like, they're like, they're like frozen in amber or something. And like <laughs> this one and the last one for that matter, didn't seem to get quite as much attention, which is striking. If you just step back and are like, we've created this enormous cohort of schools. This is, if you think about sort of the history of public education, this is one of the more ambitious experiments and innovations historically that we, that we have seen in this country. Um, and these results keep coming in and they're changing. It's an evolving story. You would think there'd be more interest and curiosity. And yet I just didn't see, you know, a lot of attention. Maybe it's the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And so good news, you know, or somewhat good news didn't get the attention, but like, I'm just one observer. I mean, you were at the epicenter of it. How did you experience, like, is there a changing appetite around like, you know, what kind of news, the, the level of information, like what, what's going on? So I want to make a distinction between um, folks who are actually engaged in the crafting of policy and the public media. Uh, and I think the statement that you just made applies pretty broadly to the public media. I mean, we have, um, we have learned from our past studies that a lot of this is a slow burn, that uh, particularly as we uh, continue to talk about or place op-eds in particular places, other other news vehicles start to pick up on it. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at the media reaction this past week, uh, but I'm not, um, I'm not ready to pack the tent yet. On the policy leadership side though, I have to say, um, it's been a very different reaction this time. Um, most of our state partners require us to do briefings with them before the report is released. And of course we would wanna do that anyway. Um, and the conversations that we've had in those settings um, have been much more um, uh, constructive, I would say, uh, than we've seen in the past. Uh, we've been asked to be much more available to share the results and to discuss, um, without making any policy recommendations, discuss the implications of what we've learned. Um, and so, Lots of folks in the policy arena are handing us off so that they can create a community of folks who know the findings. And I, I look at that as a very positive development. Yeah, that's actually just like a robust set of folks doing that. That's extremely encouraging just in terms of how issues evolve. That if, and is that, and is that bipartisan? And is that, are you seeing like, say a little bit more about that? Cause like if that, that, that is obviously, a, that's probably the most encouraging thing we've talked about. Yeah. Um, in this whole discussion if, if, if that's happening in a number of places. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that's happened over the long term that we've been doing this research, and as you spoke about keeping these data relationships going, um, is that I think we've actually worked ourselves into, um, I wouldn't call it allies necessarily, but at least respected colleagues in a number of places that you would not normally think we would have any kind of um, traction. And so there are quiet conversations that are going on in places that you wouldn't expect. And surprising to me, lack of conversations in some of the places where you would expect it. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're tracking this sort of one day at a time as it comes and, and really trying to make sure that the focus is on looking at what the evidence says and what it portends for future decision-making for K-12 in the public space. 
I like that focus on what and what this portends, because I've had conversations with several advocates whose state sectors are just nailing it. And it could very well be that you can make a big deal about about the results that are here. Um, But they also know they are sobered by their own data about what's happened to charter schools during COVID. And a lot of those supports that charter schools were using to generate these kinds of results were the exact supports that were most affected by, by the pandemic. And so, you know, our folks are saying, don't make too much hay about it right now because our data might not look as good a year from now, right? Do you have anything that you've seen as it relates to this data and, and heading into COVID that would help us understand what might be a coming? Um, because everybody's got their guess on, on what's going to happen with charter schools through the pandemic. But do you have any, any inclinations there? So we don't have the kind of longitudinal student level data that we have used in these studies. But during the pandemic, we actually did do a fair amount of research about what was going on in charter schools. And we zeroed in on three states, three very different states, I should say. Um, And what we found was that many of the things that we had believed before about what made charter schools different were evident in spades. And what I really mean here is uh, what we saw was a f- much faster responsiveness of, scar- of, of school teams to the changing conditions of, of the schooling that they faced, that they literally turned within a few days to an alternative learning model and insisted on learning as they went along and continuous improvement as they went along. That was something that we didn't see in any of the comparative um, examples that we that we dealt into. I also think that there was a, um, a, a real commitment that they identified themselves without being prompted to being first responders and took on that mindset. And so when we talked to school leaders and when we talked to educators and we talked to parents, we got this consistent message of these guys are frontline fighters. And I would say that Throughout the pandemic, I think universally we're going to see learning loss when we get those data and actually can nail down what that looks like. I think we're going to see learning loss no matter where we look. But what I would say is I think both the the magnitude of that I anticipate would be smaller. And I think the resiliency of, of those teams to get back on track is probably higher. Those are my predictions. Interesting. And I mean, and, and you square that with, we've got some very, very preliminary data in the NAEP findings. And, mm-hmm. that, and so that's what you're sort of grounding that uh, as well as what you're saying. Well, and, and through some of the um, formative assessment providers yeah. that yeah. we partner with, we can see some of those interim results starting to come through. So I, I don't want to get too far out in front of the data because frankly, there's not enough of it to be able to say things, you know, sort of with the kind of authority that these other studies provide, but the early indicators are pretty encouraging. So let me ask you a question about just the funding of this project and what it portends, Mackie. You've been able to do this for a long time and it seems like maybe the real risk was after 2009, people just like throw in the towel and stuff. And instead you've been able to keep these studies going. And as you said, and we'll, we'll put in the show notes, there's, you know, studies of particular um, uh, states, there's studies of, of, of cities. It's, it's a treasure trove of data on charters. And we've had, you know, over the last 20, 25 years, a problem in the sector of 
funders will quickly lose interest in something, move on, often before the results are even in. I mean, like the Gates Small Schools Initiative is sort of exhibit A, but you also saw that around some around teacher evaluation, some other things. Um, and challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You've been able to like keep with this and 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 keep it going, which is you know enormously important because the learning does happen over time. This is not sort of a point in time thing. It's an overtime thing. So talk about like how have you been able to do that and what and, and, and what should we be doing more of? Like what are the broader implications for the field, you know, even beyond charters and so forth, of, of this kind of work you've been able to do? Um, so it's a wonderful question. And um when when we put the results of the three studies together and we saw the upward trend across all of these three studies that that emerged um for us it wasn't a wow look at that charter schools are really are, are really pushing it here and they're doing really well I, obviously we we were happy to see that result and we are happy to bring those findings forwards but for me the real insight there was policy takes a really long time to mature and it takes an endurance that i don't know is well matched to the context and so you asked about the funders Uh, i have to give credit to the legislatures that continue to endorse the policy over time Um, i give i give credit to the school teams that continue to battle on when they're faced with the kind of political uncertainty that they faced over time and I, I, I really appreciate the authorizers who have been diligent about applying new standards in increments so that the incentives work in the directions that they do. So for me, what, what we've got here is we've got a collective mix of a lot of different stakeholders who are in it for the long haul and are willing to stand tough over the long haul. And that, for me, is the big insight of that trend line that we see. It's ironic, though, right? Because it's happening on an issue that is particularly contentious, has become partisan. Like, I think, like, like a, a naive hypothesis would be this would be the kind of issue where that wouldn't happen. It might happen on on stuff that's a little where there's a little bit more of a of a, of a different kind of foundation, different kind of um, political and policy arrangement. So, I think it, it's it's a super encouraging story because I mean, you, you you do it is a little bit of if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. If we can if we can keep if we can keep this kind of subsystem kind of working in terms of, you know, policy and learning on an issue like this, like that's hugely encouraging on other issues uh, that we think about, like standards, accountability, even school finance, other other issues where the politics are a little bit different to start with. I, I think that's great. I also don't, don't want to minimize how much effort it took to keep, keep the game going. So um, let me just say um, a lot of feet on the line standing in the fire. So yeah. And guys, I'm really sorry, but I have my annual meeting with the boss in four minutes. <laughs> That's all right. Well, we, you, it's a great note to end it on, the, the mixed metaphor of feet and fire. <laughs> but um, uh, but no, that note you just ended on how much hard work it was. I mean, just, I, I know I speak for Jed when I say this, just speak for us, extremely grateful to you for this work. This is, this, this is really oh, substantial. My, like, my team, knowing that work. the two of you are, are giving that kind of praise, my team's going to yeah. get really excited to hear this. Thank you. I'll pass it on. I, I think the so multi-decade, yeah, that multi-decade view is becoming one of the most important. And, and it's the only view that helps us suss out what's really going on. 
So for everyone that's doing it, you know, we should uh, offer special thanks. And Mac, you know, one's doing it to the level that you are. So thank you for that. And thanks for being with us here. All right, Andy, it's good to see you, Jen. I'll see you next week, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Look forward to seeing you in Austin. Good luck with your uh, with your meeting here in a few, in a few minutes. Hey, you can tell you can tell your boss that we either loved it or hated it, depending on what will help you. What will what will help you the most? Uh, we we found it's sometimes sometimes it's our it's our praise or our criticism sometimes helps people more. I'll report back. <laughs> See you back. Well, that was great, right? Sure seemed uh, sure seemed good to me. I mean, well. Um, We'll figure out how to uh, make the the edits here and. Oh, hey, oh, hang on! I was thinking. Sorry, I was thinking we would record a second after she left. Okay. Well, do let's, want let's to, do or you, you want to do a wrap up or not? What do you think? Let's do it. Let's do it. So give a pause and you go with. Hey, that was great. Hey, that was great. What a what a good first guest. Like really substantive and important uh, important issue. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned so much from Mackie over all our decades of work together that, um, you know, to see her continuing to unearth things that no one else is finding, um, it's just really great. And um, I don't sense her her own personal desire to keep going waning at all. It's just, can we keep the societal conditions together such that this really important work can be brought to light or these findings can be brought to light? But I think it's encouraging. I mean, look, she's obviously she's someone who's disposed towards reform. I mean, that that's that's clear. But the fact they've been able to do this work, shoot it straight over the years, talk about the good and the bad, even in this study, it's not all good. It's just it's such an encouraging thing when there's so much pressure on everybody to just pick a side, you know, and you're seeing people on charters who are like they're not really against charters, but the politics the way they are, they're definitely throwing their lot in with people who are against charters. Um, uh, and then likewise, you've got people in the choice community who have never like really stopped to question a lot that they're just always are for choice. And to see someone like Mackie, who, who does bring real nuance to it, to see her uh, be able to produce this work and succeed at it like she has, uh, it, it, it's really encouraging. And this last report had two million virtual twins. It's four million data sets, the students who's, who's, who are being looked at, right? So I think that's a part of what the credibility is for her. Hey, it's having done it over many, many years, but also to have a scope of, of statistical undertaking that just becomes uh, very difficult to refute. So hopefully, um, you know, those policymakers who have get, are getting those individual briefings from her will take this stuff to heart and keep the resolve necessary to allow further studies like this to happen going forward. Yeah, well, look, just speaking as a guy who only has two twins, I can't even get my, I can't even get my head around that. Um, that is, that is a lot. That is a lot of twins. Um, well, this was great, Jed. I'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoy Austin. I know you're off, you're off to, to there. Yeah. Looking forward to conference and looking forward to talking on the other side of it. So take good care to them, Andy. You as well. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.